time now to see everybody here with another one of those really, really big uh, Tengri domes that uh, sort of go beyond the scope of uh, usual, you know, fight breakdowns and that kind of stuff. But this time, instead of uh, discussing uh, analysis or like talking about uh, the idea of analyzing fights, we're mostly just going to delve into one of those topics that sort of nagged me uh, about MMA for a while now. And uh, I've got a bunch of uh, like-minded people uh, who were also kind of annoyed by this subject for quite a while now. And uh, yeah, we're just going to, uh, you know, it's going to be one of those discussions about ethics and uh, concepts and ideas. And uh, yeah, it's if, if you're uninterested in, the, in that kind of stuff, uh, then you, you probably should just turn it off because it's, we're going to go on for like probably two hours about this. And uh, the idea today is, um, what we're going to discuss today is uh, the... Uh, well, not fiction, but the idea of mask traditional masculinity as it's perceived in the world of combat sports and how it's been affected by outside factors, by factors outside of combat sports, like stuff like politics and uh, all the bullshit culture world talking points and all that kind of stuff. Um, f- like, to just get this right out of the way, to, to set the tone, so to speak, it, it is... I am of the opinion uh, that the idea of traditional masculinity commonly espoused by modern conservatives that has been picked up by the UFC and UFC fans is complete fiction. And we're going to be sort of like calling back to some of the episodes that we've had on uh, concepts like the idea of toughness in combat sports or like how culture uh, and institutions affect combat sports. And those were discussion panels that we've had that featured... Uh, martial artists, uh, coaches, analysts, and uh, actual active fighters. So if you're interested in hearing our thoughts regarding these topics, uh, we're going to touch upon them briefly, but just go back and listen to those episodes. There's also the Savage Mountain Men episode of Tengri Dome. Uh, it's a solo episode, and uh, I talked about how like uh, all these papakahet weirdos just sort of like... Um, have created this idea of why fighters from the Caucasus and other post-Soviet regions are so effective. It's mostly just rooted in all the stereotypes that they have about the region, as opposed to, you know, actual factual knowledge uh, that they actually, like, you know, went out of the way, out of their way to seek out. And so this is probably going to take, um, this is probably just going to be a series of episodes uh, exploring this topic, but this one is going to be just sort of laying the groundwork for that kind of stuff. So we'll examine the common talking points brought up by fight fans, uh, deconstruct them using historical examples, compare and contrast uh, the masculine values of different cultures, like based in fact, like, you know, we're going to basically just try to fact and logic this crowd that really lo- loves you, you like you know abusing the idea of facts and logic to just promote their agenda and we're just going to take all that and compare and contrast them with the modern idea of a tough manly man and the idea of a tough manly man that is endemic to uh the vocal um, the, the very outspoken part of UFC fans that's uh, just kind of like in, uh, falling somewhere near 
uh, all those outright trad return to tradition masculinity weirdos that uh, have been just that just dime a dozen right now on the internet. Folks like Andrew Tate, um, Liver King, uh, etc. You know what I'm talking about. If you're any sort of, uh, if if you're if you're online these days, you probably came across some of them. You probably even the algorithms on social media right now just sort of kind of they they kind of let this content content seep into your feed. If if you log on to YouTube, you start looking for like. Korean spicy chicken recipe. You watch the Korean spicy chicken recipe, and then suddenly the next video is something like, uh, <laughs> "Here's how hunter gatherers traditionally ate organ meat raw back in the uh, in 5000 BCE or something like that." So we're gonna touch briefly upon that, and uh, yeah, just uh, the idea of this. Um, how I would put it is. Um, I would put it as the weaponization of the masculine ideal for political and propaganda purposes and um, uh, just the way modern online grifters as well as political figures and forces use it to propagate their agenda. And for that purpose, I'm joined today by my usual co-host for these big, big episodes, uh, Haxerized, and also friend of the site, Simon Amorim who was also featured on the alternate commentary we did for Max Holloway versus uh, Volkanovsky 3. Oh, Volkanovsky versus Max Holloway 3, the third fight, which you can check out on our Patreon. Anyway, hello, folks. Hello. Hello. We should give a shout-out, because Simon's knowledge of all things movies, and thus movies like Taxi Driver, means he has an intimate understanding of what incels want. He's very well read on these things. <laughs> I mean, we will bring up all that stuff. Yeah, that, that's partially why I brought Simon on board because he's a big, you know, movie guy. And uh, I mean, it's been kind of a sort of a, a very uh, contentious talking point in online discourse about movies like Fight Club, Taxi Driver, uh, Tar, the recent example that you brought up, brought up in the discussion we've had before starting the recording. Yeah, I've seen. Uh, I- I've seen all uh, I've I've seen all six thousand movies in the angry white guy kills a lot of people. So uh, <laughs> I don't I don't know how many of those I've seen. It's a lot. They make a lot of those movies. Um, yeah. Anyways, it's good to be on. We don't get to do this often. It's a bit of a it's a bit of a dark topic in some ways, but uh, I think we can make some we can bring some positive things out of this. I mean, we'll try. <laughs> yeah, we'll try. Yeah, every time I want to bring up uh, someone, it's, uh, it's just br- bring someone on board. It's always like, oh, you're gonna have me talk about the cool fights that we watched and all the nice, interesting stuff that I know. Like, no, you're gonna talk about insults and rape. <laughs> oh no. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so just. Uh, to just sort of restate our credentials once again, so the listeners know what we're going to bring to the table. Yeah, credentials, quote unquote, <laughs> just basically just stuff we know. Uh, I am a man. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I am a guy. Uh, sometimes I get horny, but uh, it doesn't turn me into a rapey domestic abuser. <laughs> so that that is my credentials. <laughs> wow, talk about a soy. 
But yeah, uh, basically what why I want to examine this from a cultural standpoint is uh, that I grew up in a tiny Siberian village. I'm one of those, uh, I'm probably as close as it gets in the modern world to one of those, you know, hunter-gatherer societies that <laughs> uh, the, the modern uh, online grifters like just glamorize uh, left and right. Yeah. But yeah, <laughs> I, I just you have a level 100 fletching. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Essentially, yeah. I mean, I grew up like mostly like just doing hard manual labor on a farm in that, Siberia. The, I, I won't have any more RuneScape references, I promise. <laughs> While I may not live in that type of a society anymore, I, I did spend a fair amount of time growing up and as a young adult on the frontier as well. And uh, it fucking sucks, you know. Yeah. There's nothing quite like listening to some white guy who has you know lived in the comfort of a first world society their entire life telling you how manly and you know life-shaping it is to feel that if granddad walked down and smashed his hip he'd probably bleed to death you know before the ambulance got there if there even is an ambulance or equivalent there's probably a cart there's probably like a, a horse cart and there's no- or a family road trip, you know, yeah. in that one car that you've managed to resurrect, like uh, Bush Mechanics from that ABC TV yeah, series. Just a shitbox <laughs> falling apart at the seams. So, um, so I think it would be a good idea to, I think, state the obvious here, which is that there's been events in the uh, sphere, the orbit of combat sports over the last three months Mm. that have really um, made it kind of obvious of a thing to talk about, which is the problem of the way men act and are looked at in this area. And uh, I mean, this has always been a problem in MMA. There's always been domestic abusers in combat sports. There's always been misogyny, Um, but there's been some quite public, uh, displays and discourse around it and uh i think that's why we thought it was important to do this yeah it's not Um, like it's a problem that is unique to mma but it's it's a problem that is uh, just manifests Mm -hmm. itself in very interesting ways by interesting i mean embarrassing but uh it's like by and large we can we could probably say that for example in in other more well established sports like for example like NFL sure they could be doing a better job of like uh, punishing domestic abusers and um, all that kind of stuff but in MMA it it's it doesn't in NFL the the whole fan base doesn't come out in defense of a, of a, of, a, of a player that just uh, hit his wife in public or it it doesn't it doesn't say that anyone who's trying to condemn this person uh, is actually like you know soy pilled or a weakling or any other sort of bullshit that uh, the MMA fans like to like to say yeah. i mean you, I, you do you do get a lot of that but it feels like in MMA it's the 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 pro beating your wife's side feels quite dominant compared to uh and there's no uh, media apparatus to kind of hold people in power to any sort of account, like when you know a NFL star, you know, is caught hitting his wife. There's you know constant news run, twenty four hours on ESPN, Stephen A. Smith talking about it, yeah. and then uh, Dana White it happens, and it's kind of like a six hour news thing, and he's holding a slap fighting event a week from then, 
and it plays on TBS, which shows sitcoms mostly and game shows. On top of everything else that the both of you have said, MMA is also a sport where the person who is not necessarily the brains or the heart of the operation, but the public face says, oh, you're, d- you're, you're done with us, boy. Your career is done with us if you ever hit a woman and is then on record hitting a woman and the consequences that he suffers for it are zero. So it's not just the fact that, you know, it seems to be okay to hit a woman in MMA or it seems to be okay to use, you know, physical force that isn't proportional to the situation against somebody that's weaker with you, if you want a technical answer, rolling my fucking eyes. But the fact that the guy who, you know, set the own moral standard doesn't even hold himself to his own moral standard, I mean, that says a lot about the totally broken space we kind of exist in. Yeah, just the events that prompted this episode, obviously, like the big one is Dana White slapping his wife. Dana White defense force coming out in, you know, force. Phil Baroni fucking beat his girlfriend to death uh, shortly after that. And uh, Andrew Tate finally got his stupid ass uh, arrested, which prompted just like a, a number of prominent MMA fighters to come out uh, in force and express solidarity with a known sex trafficker. And everyone is just like, how can you prove that Andrew Tate is a sex trafficker? What happened to the presumption of innocence? And like, Andrew Tate is fucking, look at his website. <laughs> Just Google it. It's all up there. He's actually, he's actually bragging about that. All, all the stuff yeah. that he did on his website. The Andrew Tate stuff is, is so fascinating because um, in the real world, you get in trouble for sex trafficking, but in the masculine uh, return to tradition online space. They're completely astounded that he has faced any kind of repercussion for his actions. And uh, men get away with horrible things all the time, but you can't be an obvious idiot sex trafficker yeah, and uh, just get away for it forever. A, a nice um, parallel, I would say, that is just kind of showcases just how sheltered MMA fans are intellectually is the reaction to the James Krause situation where Jeff Molina is up there, is out there just, just implicating himself, both himself and Jeff and uh, James Krause and uh, all the fraud, criminal fraud that they, that they have done with uh, the selling of insider information regarding the state of MMA fighters coming into the game. He's a level above insider trafficking, also known as how to get your non-0.000001% ass blasted out of the courts faster than you can like, just yes. express your disappointment. Yes, Jeff Malina just saying, it's like insider trading. <laughs> yeah. On, 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 on the Tate Brothers, um, there's no shortage of clips you can go to in, uh, you know, just fire up YouTube and look for analysis by lawyers saying, I'm not saying that this person is guilty. I'm saying that the tape, the, the statements that a certain Tate brother has made publicly don't look very good. Uh, I, I would also add just maybe as a point. I see a lot of people kind of push back on some of the points we're raising with, well, you shouldn't say anything until they've had their day in court. They're not officially guilty. And firstly, a point to what I just mentioned, you know, listen to the opinions of professional lawyers with 20, 30 years experience in these matters saying, Andrew Tate should shut his fucking mouth. 
I wouldn't want him as a client. These are defense lawyers. These are people that would, you know, would be looking for an opportunity to defend him if they thought it was a worthwhile case. But secondly, even if some of these situations are not guilty situations in the court of law for whatever reason, and please remember, not guilty should not be taken to mean innocent. They are two different things. Ask a fucking lawyer. We also need to ask ourselves, why do we keep ending up in this situation? Like, why do we continually have situations of accused domestic violence or domestic violence or intimidation or use of force and force and threats and so on. Even if not all of these are true, it at least seems to me that the incidence of this type of stuff happening in the combat sports sphere is much higher than it is in others. And that's important too. Yeah, it's like... It just That's a perfect point, yeah. Yeah, it just brings us to just to the question, like, what is the major malfunction? Why is MMA like this? Why, is, why are combat sports like this? Just why has... Combat sports become a space where most men believe that it's okay to hurt women. And why do such men gravitate towards MMA? And there are numerous factors uh, just that um, uh, caused this uh, situation to happen, caused, uh, that's, ha- have led to this situation developing. But yeah, let's just... Uh, get into this whole thing and just examine the very specific point that I kind of just the reason why I uh, brought everyone together for for this uh, for this episode just the myth of the real man that is very prominent nowadays in uh, in uh, like frustrated young men communities and uh, yeah combat sports is 100% is uh, basically just the space where frustrated young men gather because purely because of the nature of uh, of our sport yeah so um i uh i had a a thought about this which is about the um the feedback loop of toxic masculinity if you want to call it that that occurs in these spaces which is there's an automatic association between combat violence um, strengths, you know, physical attributes and masculinity. This is one of the oldest, you know, traits of masculinity is this, is this connection, um, to, to, you know, to the warrior King and all this stuff, right? It's literally thousands of years old. And because of that, you get people coming into MMA with traditional views of masculinity and conservative views of masculinity that, look at you know things like ignorance and misogyny and all these negative traits as intrinsic to their identity and they bring it into mma and those are the people who fight in mma and those are the people who own the mma organizations and who are the coaches and who are the fans and because the space is filled with these people. When you have new people come into the space, this is now the idol of masculinity to them is the fighters who are like this, the owners who are like this, the, um, the fellow fans who are like this and that ideology, that view of masculinity overtakes. And when masculinity is used as a way to identify yourself, which is totally fine, um, but you don't have the positive, constructive, um, wonderful uh, things you could associate it with, uh, 
and you only have the negative, um, you, you very quickly can get these horrible situations in which the entire community is a swamp of these negative traits. And, uh, you get situations like, you know, a majority of online fans defending someone like Dana White. So that's kind of how I think we've gotten here a little bit. And we can get into the specifics of history and of fighters, um, if you want. I think some things I would talk about are uh, institutions and boundary conditions. Because I think a lot of people underestimate how very quickly, if you have two groups of people, so let's say two populations, let's say uh, I may be wrong on this, but let's say baseball fans, that doesn't strike me as a sport that's particularly pro-domestic violence, and then and, you know combat sports fans. You can start with these two groups of people having a very similar predisposition towards uh, being okay with any type of violence, right? And you can have a few small changes, very small changes. If you think of both sides as groups of 100 people, so 100%, if you make even a 1% or 2% change in either's attitude towards something and then another 1% or 2% change due to another factor and then another factor, those differences can add up very quickly over time. For people that are a bit confused by that, go, go pick up a compound interest calculator and start seeing how quickly 5% becomes real a really really big number then try it with exponential interest so like some examples of you know boundary conditions that for me that would lead to you know combat sports being more violent well let's start with two really obvious ones uh number one combat sports is about violence that inherently means you're going to attract a, a crowd that are probably more comfortable with and perhaps more predisposed to not even violent solutions but talking about violence, having a discussion about violence, and in some situations being prepared to use violence. Another example of something in combat sports spaces that comes to me as a really obvious one is people get hit. When you get hit a lot, particularly in MMA due to its very, very emphasis on hard sparring in a lot of camps, and we can see that also through a high degree of um, fighter injuries, that causes CTA. We know what CTE does to people's brains. And I want to make it clear that I'm not excusing things here. This is not an excuse for this behavior. Unacceptable behavior is unacceptable behavior. Rather, I'm trying to look at small environmental reasons that may make, you know, an MMA uh, or a combat sports personal community, you know, 1% or 2% more likely to do violent things and how that can add up quickly over time. And, you know, also there's a kind of a glorification of violence, right? Like, but that also crosses over into institutions. So the UFC as an organization, how often does it take action against its own people when they're guilty of, you know, promoting violent behavior? I mean, what happened after, was it uh, Leon Edwards and uh, Ore Masvidal got into a fight? That seemed to help out their careers, you know, when two fighters punching on outside of a ring is the sort of thing they should be punished for. So I would say even a lot of the institutions within combat sports tend to reward people for being violent, or at least they don't punish them anywhere near hard enough. Another example would be Javonta Davis. What real consequences has he faced in the boxing world for, well, his violent past? So when you put those two things together, the little what I call boundary conditions or environmental changes that make 
you know, combat sports people just a bit more open to violence. And then you throw in the institutions not punishing people for being violent. I think you've got some very simple explanations that over a generation of fighters, two generation of fighters, three generation of fighters and their fans, and, you know, MMA has been, UFC has been around what, like 25 years plus in a, in a sense where it occupies the consciousness that's enough time for a couple of generations. You can have that attitude build and develop into a rolling snowball over time. And then a, a lot of what Simon says happens because then people outside of the space who aren't into the, you know, the violence and perhaps the violence that overlaps the domestic violence, they'll just leave because it's not a place for them. Yeah, there's um, that, that point you brought up about um, the institution and the thing about the institution the institution of MMA, Dana White, the UFC, these uh, organizations that almost always allow acts of domestic violence, acts of misogyny, you know, uh, unjustified fighting between people when it's not in the ring, right? That without punishment is it preserves and protects those who do it. And if those people who do it are successful, these things that they've done, it's, it doesn't hold them back. And what then happens is you get people that become convinced that these things he's done, the domestic violence, the misogyny, the fighting people outside the ring, this isn't just a thing they do and they're successful. It actually in some way is their success, is why they are successful, because they are like this. This is how you get people who think that John Jones is a great fighter because he's the type of person who will do a hit and run while high on cocaine. Like that is somehow the type of person that is great at MMA. And if you want to be great at MMA, you need to be like John Jones, right? Or if you want to be great at MMA, you need to be this traditionally masculine, you know, stoic, hyper-focused, emotionless, you know, character to be good at fighting, right? And as soon as you stop punishing or um, having consequences for these actions, you can start getting people who start thinking that they're actually the cause of success. Gervonta Davis is a great boxer because he's a violent man who would hit his wife and that just makes him vicious in the ring, right? Mike Tyson is a rapist. And that's the, that's the type of guy he is. And being that type of guy is why he was such a great boxer. Obviously, these things aren't true. These are horrifying, you know, dark thoughts that a lot of people subconsciously and consciously believe in the MMA sphere that this is what's necessary to being great or to being successful or to being talented. Um, and I think we, we've all kind of, come into this with our own ideas about what what actually can you can your identity be where you're successful what will actually make you better by associating yourself and trying to reach a, a, a proper ideal and uh we can move on to that if anyone wants to i mean yeah to just sort of like piggyback of uh the thought that you started the trail thought that you started is uh like this um uh per, like this misconception these misconceptions that breed uh that are just encouraged to breed in the, the MMA sphere just based off uh, 
ignorance and uh, lack of actual critical thinking in regards to certain stereotypes. Like, for example, uh, crazy savages and poverty fetishism are all the rage in the in the culture of MMA. Like, if you're a fighter from outside the US, then you're probably poor and uneducated, but that's what made you a good fighter. Same with uh, being a fighter that is violent or a fighter that is prone to outbursts of rage. That's what made you a good fighter. Not finding a, a good gym with a good coach or training with other good folks. Uh, and or being like, athletic and, or yeah, MMA millions fans, of other things. Yeah, MMA fans are seemingly unable to comprehend that, for example, Brazil has cities in it, especially like in light of what the people were saying about Alex Pereira, for example. Like, <laughs> like th- their idea of, of a champion is uh, like, for example, like a fighter from, a co- from the Caucasus region. They don't think that fighters from Caucasus train in well-equipped gyms after the, uh, their university classes. They think that they t- train on top of Mount Elbrus, bollock naked from the age of seven with bears swatting at their cheeks. And like, the, the most prominent voices <laughs> in MMA continue to yap on about hunter-gatherers and diets where you eat nothing but horse balls and uh, bad dragon builders without any hint of irony. And like, <laughs> just to just... The best example of uh, this sort of like low effort smart, uh, as I like to call it, is uh, Joe Rogan praising Marcus Aurelius for his more than sounding English <laughs> on one of the episodes <laughs> when they were talking about what like a man should behave or like uh, the ideas of masculinity. Like it didn't occur to him that uh, the actual treaties that he he was reading was just translated that way. <laughs> just. Marcus Aurelius wrote in more than sounding English that is easy to comprehend back in the Roman times. That's what he thought. That's what his brain jumped to immediately. And that's kind of, that, that tells you, tells you so much about the way that MMA fans think about a lot of these things. A, a point that I'd really like to make there is that these, these, I call them grifter masculinity because that's really what they are. These ideas have so little nuance. They're almost hostile to the idea of nuance. And, you know, a really great example that has kind of been implied without, you know, explicitly said is, you know, the, the rise of Dagestani fighters. There's a lot of Dagestani fighters in the UFC and a lot of them aren't that successful. The ones that are successful, ones like Habib and Mac, take a step back and look at their games. They're thoughtful, intelligent, well-considered approaches to fighting that are different. Like it, people still continue to fucking say that Habib and Mac are the same fighter with the same threats and they're not even close. Like they don't even use their striking to set up their, you know, their aggressive grappling games in the same way. But by reducing them to these creatures with no nuance who are excellent fighters because they're hungry and they come from the land of the savage mountain men, maybe rather instead than acknowledging that perhaps the environment they grew up in gave them some motivation and that was combined with a fantastic gym environment, great teammates, you know, specialized training and so on. It just we just end up in an environment where we find one thing, one reason that's sexy to us, that appeals to us, that fits what we already believe to be true, and we say that's why that guy's a gun, rather than you know an approach of nuance and you know of trying to be more scientific and realizing that everybody as a successful person is a combination of you know hundreds, if not thousands, if not you know arguably millions of factors all at play at once. And for me, that's kind of the, as we, I think we're kind of moving into, you know, the idea of manliness and the the often 
mistold narratives about it. But I would say to anyone that's perhaps on the fence or not really sure how to recognize what is a grifter in the you know masculinity sphere, how much nuance do they have? Because in the end, most ideas are complex. Like, you know, Makachev came out and in many ways beat Chucky Olives, one of the best aggressive fighters I've ever seen, because he was insightful and intelligent enough to study him and find methods and approaches and ways of fighting on the back foot that also chained in his own grappling threats. Does that sound like savage mountain man or does that sound like methodical, disciplined planning that comes from a team and preparation? So why is everyone that wants you to think he's successful because he's a savage mountain man telling you one story? This is kind of endemic to the... Uh, this is just um, a good exemplifier of how endemic anti-intellectualism is in uh, the combat sports sphere because... Uh, when, whenever I notice this, whenever like someone posts uh, bits of analysis online, usually what you face, uh, like in, for example, on Instagram, if you post uh, a short breakdown of a fight on Instagram, of not even a fight, like a sequence, here's a fighter throwing one one twos. The first the first jab sets up. Uh, the, the first jab is a feint that sets up the second jab that connects and then that's, that second jab disguises the right hand that comes over the top, knocks out the other man. The comments are sometimes like, well, well how do they, do, do, do you actually believe that they are able to think that fast in a fight? Like, obviously not, but that's the, con those are the concepts that are allowed the, the knockout to happen. And that's the understanding of those concepts that, uh, uh, why the fighter used the one one two? It's the into the they they trained it into their fists. How do you may know it? Yes, essentially, yeah. It's just the development of those fighting instincts through thoughtful training. <laughs> yeah, there's uh to to go back to Hax's point a little bit with Andrew Tate. He blew up on TikTok primarily is kind of where his original like superstardom spawn from which if you think about it for five seconds means that all his ideas these uh exciting uh, apparently ideas to young men uh could all be condensed into tiktoks hmm. which is a good example of why they probably are not good ideas if if everything you've ever said every point you've ever made every you know, anecdote and piece of your philosophy is sh can be shortened to that length and does not need any more clarification or extrapolation is probably not someone you should be listening to. It should, ideas should be hard for you to grapple with. They shouldn't be easy answers. If you are listening to someone and everything they're saying seems like such a simple, easy solution or explanation, they're usually trying to get you to buy something. That's, that's really it. They want you to buy something. And it's insulting to people that put so much thought and craft into what they do. Habib's father, sit down and read a fucking interview with him. That man thought a lot. And I think one of the places in which he almost waxes lyrical, he gets almost quite philosophical about it, is when he talks about the importance of the gyms and the training and the structure and the positive examples of, you know, being a man, 
being somebody who's an adherent of the faith, if applicable, he, he gets quite almost poetic about how important that stuff to him, providing that stuff is for him to young men in the region. Like it, it's it's the antithesis of grifter masculinity. It's it's of substance and value and thought. And I also really liked Simon that you pointed out that it's you, you don't just look at the solution, you look at the explanation behind it because sometimes the solution or the explanation can be really really easy but the other part of it can be hard it's very rarely when they're both because you know sometimes the key to winning a fight like if you're if you're fighting somebody like michael johnson you know your preparation for winning that fight is pretty simplistic you there's a there's certain things you need to do and you're probably going to win that doesn't mean that the ideas behind those simple things aren't themselves complex and nuanced and worth learning. Yeah. Um, when I just want to do that. I was thinking about this from the very beginning when we first uh, had this idea, but I, I, I thought it was an important thing to clarify, which is that um, in almost all the cases that you'll see coming up, we don't personally know any of the uh, people we're talking about, the good and the bad. Um and they're strangers to us. But because in the MMA sphere, there is a parasocial relationship with a lot of these people and their lives and their philosophies and their actions are simplified and uh, or, or not known about, um, we're going to use them as examples for certain traits or certain philosophies and outlooks. And... Uh, There'll be some simplification in that. So when I later, if when I'm talking about Sang Tainoi, I've never met Sang Tainoi. I don't know Sang Tainoi's life, but I'm going to use him as an example of something. Um, and I'm just looking for anyone listening to this to just focus on that example to see what that can represent. Um, because obviously everyone's a very complicated person. Makachev's complicated. Abdul Manap's complicated. Khabib's complicated. Um, but when we use them as an example, we just want to use it to talk about a very specific thing. So the narrative that we, we can glean from this is uh, the simplification of ideas. Uh, the, the very good point about uh, Andrew Tate becoming popular over TikTok. It's the, the it's not so much condensation because ideas can be condensed to like axioms. It's uh, so long as you understand that the actual uh, process behind coming to the conclusion uh, that is presented to you was actually complex, and the process was very like intricate and involved a lot of thinking. But what we see now is. Uh, shortcuts to essentially like finding who you are shortcuts to, towards finding yourself finding your identity because uh, it, it's 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 always been uh, like it's it's a lifelong pursuit finding uh, finding out more about yourself understanding who you are and uh, to a lot of people yeah that's that seems like a, an intimidating prospect so a lot of people flock to easy solutions and that's where all grifters, not just masculinity grifters, make their buck. It's always uh, this number one trick to losing weight, this uh, number one trick to gaining lots of muscle really quickly, this number one trick to getting to getting lots of dates going on, uh, or buying a new car, or getting 
lots and lots of money. And it's never the the real answer to all those problems is always like something boring, something mundane, or something that involves a lot of work, something that uh, that uh, requires lots and lots of sacrifice uh, um, when it comes to your free time or effort or just uh, any any number of things. And people don't want that, especially frustrated people towards whom the content is aimed, the people at whom the content content is aimed. And uh, it's, uh, yeah, I can understand why people flock to it. I can understand why people just latch on to these ideas. But at the end of the day, it's just false. They're just falsehoods. They're lies. They're, they're, they're not solutions in any way. They're just, if anything, they just lead you to if anything, they're just dead ends. They do not leave any room for improvement. They do not leave any room for experimentation or errors. It's always do this unless you want to miss out. And if you do this, you're going to be successful and uh, handsome, have lots of girls and have lots of cars just like me. And that just ha- that that alone is just a giant red flag, but not a lot of people recognize it, unfortunately. Yeah, to to like uh, reiterate on a point is that identity it's a tool. You you identify with, you know, some kind of traditional uh role, some kind of uh, you know, teacher, student, husband, wife, child, cousin, whatever. And it tells you're telling something to someone about yourself when you identify yourself as these things. And it's the same thing with a man, right? But when you are, your ideas of what a man are, are, are broken and simple, then your what your the way you will be living your life will be broken and simple or destructive. And the reason I think, which is what you said, that this is the answer for what masculinity is to so many people is because they're, they're easy and it's hard to think about these things. Sometimes it's hard to know yourself and to know how you should act. You say, well, I, I'm a man. I feel like a man. I feel masculine. Um, and these are the people who say that they're the most masculine. So I guess I should be like them. I should try to, I should try to act like they do. Um, and that's how you end up in this idolization of all of those. Really, what we talked about was the, the fake ideas of traditional masculinity, not things that really adhered to the reality of the role of men or of masculinity. Yeah, just to just uh, to talk about to talk briefly about the role of men in societies. Like it's it's not a set thing. It's not a one thing that is just. This is what a man is, and it's been that way for like uh, for thousands of years. It's not. It's it's just like any it's contextually role. dependent. Yeah, yeah, it's contextually dependent on culture, region, historical period, the circumstances. An individual. Yeah. yeah, and like for example, the common uh, the common point, um, uh, the common uh, the commonality between, uh, for example, the return to tradition movement uh, in uh, in the west is like for example the hellenic or slash greco-roman ideal and all these uh, greek bust uh, avatars on social media that you see talking about how that's when men were really men 
and uh, they very uh, they very selectively and uh, conveniently emit certain things that are uncomfortable to them about those ideals like for example uh, like the greeks were gay as shit <laughs> they were really really gay <laughs> just because like there were different types of love that they espoused which was like the uh, familial love love towards uh, your comrade and um and not actually love towards a woman because they were insanely misogynistic <laughs> <laughs> like love towards another man yeah. and gay sex with underage boys were the height of true passion and manliness for for the Greeks. And this this is something that uh, <laughs> these return to tradition guys really really do not like to do not like acknowledging. Like recently, uh, there's a, we have a Discord community uh, which you should join by the way, listeners. But we recently had a guy join us and we started talking about how the Greeks were actually really really gay. And he got so mad, <laughs> he got so angry that he started linking <laughs> different videos from uh, like weird kooky channels that talk about how the Jews and reptilians actually run the world, and said so that, well, no, don't don't look at all the other stuff. Don't look at all the other videos on this channel. Look at this video on this uh, that that says that the Greeks weren't actually gay because he has cites lots of interesting sources. And like you look at the sources, and the sources are just like, trust me, bro. <laughs> just, <laughs> I mean, another point is that the Greek, the Greeks were defeated, and their great rival, the Persians, were defeated by somebody who, you know, a fair number of sources theorize was bisexual, who forced marriages between Persian women and Greek men, and who ran an empire that was remarkably cosmopolitan, globalist, and as it got moved on and on and on, increasingly, you know, recruited Persians as, you know, professional soldiers. So, like, it was anything but the kind of, you know, Hellenistic, monocultural, anti-globalist, you know, ideal. It was, you know, Alexander the Great was probably the closest thing to a globalist of his time in many ways. What's interesting, and just to, just, uh, to elaborate a little bit, why were the Greeks defeated in the first place? Because, like, uh, Alexander, Alexander the Great first actually had to conquer Greece, right? And what separated his soldiers... Macedonian soldiers from the other Greeks who considered the Macedonians to be barbarians for various cultural reasons, like no, one of them being that they drank undiluted wine. <laughs> just, uh, just a funny aside, but um, there was... Everyone likes to think about the Greeks like they were these ideal, perfect warriors that spent their whole life training. And that was only true for uh, the Laconians, the Spartans. And even then, it's uh, it's a warped perception. It's a perception that was mostly cultivated by things like uh, the Three Hundred, the movie, or the comic book by Frank Miller, <laughs> where they they are portrayed that way. Whereas in actual Greece, at the moment, there was a culture of uh, not so much intellectualism, but rather amateurism when it comes to warfare. The ideal. Greek male was a citizen soldier and what that meant was when war came he would join, he would uh, grab his stuff he would buy his own equipment and then just kind of like join a citizen's militia because that's what the Greek armies were. They didn't drill, they didn't train specifically to be soldiers they just kind of like grabbed grabbed their spears and just uh, had a big shoving contest every once in a while and uh, the idea was if you feel like you need to train for warfare 
if you if you feel like your skills or like or rather spirit is lacking, then that's just a, a signifier of your spiritual weakness. You don't have heart for it. The person who has the biggest heart should win in a war. That's what that was the idea of Greek warfare before Alexander the Great, who actually uh, before actually it started with. Philip II, the, the father of Alexander the Great, who actually like looked at all this stuff and said, "This is, you know, th- that's kind of stupid. You know, we should we, this we is should fucking amateur hour. Yeah, we, should, we should train. We should we should drill stuff. <laughs> you know, we should have a professional standing army. And so they developed a professional standing army and kind of sort of and sort of steamrolled through the entirety of Greece. And then they decided to start conquering. Before, well, Alexander started conquering after his father got offed in a, in, a, in an attempted coup." Is this a history podcast now? Can we just, yeah, can we just I mean, go through? A, can, can I talk about some, Cyrus the Great now? Sometimes, <laughs> Simon, you, you see a bunch of land and you're like, it's mine now. I'm going to start stabbing. Like, that's just how it goes. You know, like, it's just vibes. Okay. It happens. What a wonderful way to sum up uh, 8,000 years of human history. I mean, yeah. It's just like followed by that, there's also the Deus Vults who talk about the chivalric ideal and how the knights were actually the. Uh, the height of masculinity and the the reality was knights were by and large like constantly drunk psychos that rampaged across the countryside and just burned villages and shit and the chivalric idea was something that cooked up by the catholic church to to just keep those rampaging uh constantly drunk psychos from you know pillaging and murdering at the drop of at the drop of a hat I guess the kind of the the kind of point here is firstly that a lot of what we tend to call honor or you know the 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 ideal of the way people should behave tends to be a pragmatic summary you know more pragmatic than you think and often tied to pragmatic concerns of the time often and secondly and and I think equally importantly a lot of what we assume history to be often functions on a time scale or has details that a lot of people aren't told you know the specific details of and there's a historian called uh, brett Devereux. he runs a blog called uh, a collection of unmitigated pedantry you already know what you're in for with that name and he has a series that kind of tries to capture this called uh the fremen mirage and he talks about the idea of how the Fremen from Dune are kind of held up as being these noble warrior savages and that's why they conquered the entire, you know, the entire empire and everybody else was weak and water fat and, you know, they were nihilistic and debauched and you know, whatever. And he kind of breaks down that's not a summary of reality. It's never been a summary of reality. And anyone who's telling you that narrative is, you know, to be blunt and explicit they're lying to you that's not how the world works and i would uh wholeheartedly encourage anybody who listens to this to please please at least read the first part of that series because you will i think come out of it with some knowledge and also come out of it with a good set of tools to spot a lot of these grifters i mean hell if you even think about it look at a lot of the people in the american republican party that talk about going back to the golden era of the nuclear family in the 1950s as if that's some kind of god-given rule the nuclear family as an idea didn't even start appearing in fucking books until the 1920s it wasn't even a particularly common family unit until the 1970s yet we're supposed to see it as some kind of timeless logic according to a lot of these return to tradition type people a lot of what people will tell you is solved history or settled history or the truth is often just them 
overstating one very small period, cutting it down to bite-sized chunks and telling you it was way simpler than it actually was. Samurai being noble warriors who never did anything dodgy being another great example of that. <laughs> I mean, like, just beyond that, the actual fact that there's the fact that the way of the warrior is, uh, which is obviously the East Asian answer to the chivalric ideal, uh, more specifically the Japanese answer to the chivalric ideal, it's, it was a code of behavior enforced as a means of control over a social class with monopoly and violence. It was established during a peacetime era, shortly after the warring state spirit, and later weaponized by Meiji-era Japan, imperial Japan, for propaganda purposes to ensure the loyalty of its citizenry as it went um, uh, on its... Uh, just went conquering, essentially, uh, to towards Southeast Asia and other regions, nearby regions. Meanwhile, anything written by a samurai at the time was basically how to be a backstabbing fuck-ass, the novel. <laughs> yeah, essentially, yeah. And basically, like, the, the stuff like... Uh, Hakagure, the, uh, the 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 guide towards being to, towards developing the warrior soul. It's basically like a code of behavior that says, "Oh, if you, if uh, for example, if someone tells you this, you stab them. If someone tells you that, you you bow to them, etc., uh, etc. Et how to how to drink tea properly? That kind of stuff. It's it's not it's not a, just a, a big big book of how to become, you know, one with the force or anything like that. It's basically just a code of behavior. And that just tells you something about the fact that maybe these ideas that we develop in our society, societal roles and societal, um, uh, you know, measuring sticks by which we uh, ascertain someone's uh, fitness to be a good member, an upstanding member of society, are just, just that... There's just uh, arbitrary standards that we came up with to in order to have some some form of functioning social contract and nothing more. But what these people would try tried to tell you that this was something that was that is set in stone, something that is either dictated by biology or thousands of years of history that uh, never changed. It's something that never changed. It's not fluid. It's just a static thing that is that simply is and that's one of those and that's just another one of those simple answers because the the static idea a static idea is easier to wrap your brain around as opposed to something that changes over time and uh yeah it's just <laughs> what can oh, i say I'll, I'll tell you what simon's about to say he's leaning back in his chair like they don't know how much i'm going to talk about muay thai that's yeah that's exactly it right now. <laughs> yeah <laughs> i i would do you want to move the discussion on to uh examples of uh masculinity in combat sports sure why not <laughs> i mean after all it's it's ostensibly it's still a combat sports podcast so there we go yeah uh, we could go on about history for another 50 minutes if you really like yeah okay you want me to start i can start with it yeah um i want to talk about a guy named uh sang tainoi uh, you might have heard of him. He's a legendary Thai boxer. Um, he fought in uh, Muay Thai for a very, very long time. Uh, he was a Lumpini uh, boxing champion. He was a Raja Damnern, uh champion. I'm, I get all these pronunciations wrong. Uh, forgive me. Uh, but the reason I wanted to talk about Sang Tainoi is his in-ring persona and his perspective on fighting which um 
if you don't know, his nickname was the Deadly Kisser, which is um, very odd in a way. He would kiss his opponent after their fight and not aggressively, not in a dominating way. He it was a very kind of tender, sweet, cute kiss on the cheek. You can find photos of this. Um, and it really goes to show his specific perspective on fighting, which is that greatness and joy and success in fighting comes from compassion. He loved Muay Thai deeply. Um, you can listen to him tell the story on YouTube of uh, seeing the the uh, men from the local gym uh, just doing their run, which is the worst part of training Muay Thai is when the, your coach says, okay, everyone, let's go for our run. Um, just terrible. I hate it deeply. But he saw these men doing this and he said, oh, I want to do what they're doing. He went to the gym. He trained. His mother was deeply disapproving of it. His father less so, but his mother deeply disapproving of it. He lost his first five fights when he was about 14 years old. Um, but he didn't care. He loved the sport and he loved fighting and he loved expressing himself through that. And he loved his opponents. That's why you could say a form of love for his opponents, which is where the kiss comes from. The, the act of the combat, the training is, is, is what it comes from. He, he's not a fighter who fought out of rage or out of, um, insecurity. He fought out of compassion. Um, and that's what allowed him to be great, in my opinion. And he was great. He's, I think, one of the greats of the golden era, which has many greats, but he's, he's my personal favorite. And it really just kind of blows up the whole idea that you have to fight in that certain way. You have to have that specific violent strong mentality to be skillful, to be successful. Um, the way he fought is he kind of anti-fought in a lot of ways. He was incredibly hard to kick cleanly, just amazing kick defense. He had quite good boxing defense, um, a well-rounded skill set, and he was a bit of a just-vibes fighter in a lot of fights. Um, he kind of let his opponent take it to where they want and then specifically took away their tools in a quite beautiful way. Um, and it really fits with that kind of the mentality he had towards, towards fighting. Um, it's, it's very interesting because in Thailand, there's, you know, quite a lot of um, what you might call misogynistic attitudes in the fighting space and a lot of nationalistic attitudes in this fighting space about foreigners um, and about tradition. But um, again, we see his mentality towards his masculinity um, uh, take root there because he um, fought many foreigners. He was always open to fighting foreigners. Danny Bell, uh, Ramon Deckers. Um, and he taught, um, foreigners, specifically probably the most, one of the most famous foreigners, John Wayne Parr, he taught. Um, he was, he was great friends with many, uh, people who would come to Thailand to train with many foreign fighters. 
Um, he had a bit of a rivalry, of course. It's fighting. You, um, you're, they're trying to knock your head off and you're trying to knock their head off. Um, but just always an incredibly friendly person to outsiders looking to teach, um, to spread his knowledge, his skills, his style. He opened up his own gym. He had his own students. Um, he was quite a good coach from my understanding. And if you look at his life, which tragically ended in a suicide, um, it's, it's one where he seems to have such a positive impact on everyone around him and has left this, uh, this ingrained image of this compassionate, intelligent, friendly, lovable man. Um, and it's all because really his strong mentality and un- being unafraid to show this kind of love and compassion and openness that was built into his style, his name, and the legacy he left. And this was, I think, one of the most the beautiful. When I thought of this topic, it was like, what's the most beautiful story I could tell of of a positive male role model in combat sports? And Sangtenoy is to me exemplary. So that that's that that was my uh, six minutes, I think. <laughs> Or whatever it was, ten minutes maybe. I mean, <laughs> it's uh, hard to top that. Uh, but I think that, like the feel, I feel like we're kind of starting to talk in circles because uh, the point is, the point here is, is, just, is that I mean, masculinity is multifaceted. And yes. uh, identities are multifaceted, and uh, the ways that in which we can present ourselves to the world are, are just as can be just as varied as uh, people themselves. Every person is different, and uh, that that interplay of interpersonal relationships and uh, the, our surroundings and ourselves are what uh, creates uh, actual, you know, identities and real selves, as opposed to this one thing that uh, defines you this uh, a couple of traits that you should have in order to be a real such and such in order to be a, a real i don't know fucking plasterer or something <laughs> yeah it's about it's about finding the traits that work for your conception of yourself if you identify as a, as masculine well what does being masculine mean to you and because it's a tool you need to find the things that will help you so for Sanctinoy, it helped him to be a very relaxed and compassionate person. That helped him be a fighter. That helped him be a man. But that's not going to be for everyone in that specific way. But be, it's when you want to use it as a positive tool, you need to find the traits that you are going to associate yourself with, that you're going to live by, that you are going to try to fulfill the ideal of. Um and not the traits that are going to be self-destructive and and externally destructive to those around you. The traits that people like Andrew Tate and Dana White. Uh, Speaking of Dana of. White and just uh, narrow ideas, uh, narrow um, perceptions uh, of things, uh, like the Power Slap League <laughs> that we mentioned in, in the beginning, like. Yeah, it's, oh, it's yeah. just such a pure distillation of everything that, that uh, Dana White represents. It's just, 
two two guys just hitting each other as hard as they can with no ability to defend themselves. It's it's not even it's not even a sport yeah. in in the sense that there's no skill involved. It's it's just who slaps hardest. It's just who can withstand the most amount of slaps. I mean, let's be honest. The only thing that's not narrow about Dana White is his forehead. The guy can fuck right off, you know. But to 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 kind of fold both of your observations back, I mean, this just really highlights to me, you know, you shouldn't trust somebody who tells who sells you an idea of masculinity or anything in life. But in this context, masculinity is something that has no nuance. Is you know is is Simon's story the optimal way to be a fighter? No, I don't know. Well, sorry, I shouldn't say no. I should say I don't know if it is or isn't. It's worked for some team, though. Yeah, that's that is yeah, yeah. It's is that there's a lot of ways you can be a fighter. You don't just have to be a violent, hateful man. You don't have to be Tom Hardy and warrior running to the cage, picking someone up and slamming them, and then going to yell at your abusive father. You don't have to be some crazy wacko who drives your car into people. And so when somebody tells you the only way to get ahead, the only way to beat the matrix or, you know, whatever, (laughs) is to be a very specific type of person and behave a very specific way, those are the people you shouldn't trust. Those are the people who are trying to sell you something. I mean, another classic example is Usyk. Like, what an adorably dorky man. Like, he, he seems to spend half of his time either running around saying crazy, like, Christian phrases or embarrassing his wife in public, and yet... I mean, look what he does with his hands. He got them hands. Also, yeah. also hogged up. Have you seen the photo of him chopping wood? Just, just okay, cock watch. Cock watch. Cock watch. This is not. This is not the cock watch. I mean, just, just look seriously. Whoever's listening to this, look up Alexander no, Rusik chopping wood. So. The se- the secret to having a big penis is to scream at people saying "Hey Derek" while running across a beach. Yes, but anyway, just to go on another historical tangent, like the power slap. I've been thinking about this for a while now. The power slap league kind of reminds me. I mean, obviously, the example that I'm going to bring up is slightly more nuanced and slightly more, you know, refined, in a way. But it's it's very similar. Like um, uh, lots of when you when people think about. Um, old-timey Germany, what they think about. They think about the, the ideal Prussian soldier, the stoic uh, Prussian man. And uh, one of the things that's kind of, that was a big, sort of big during the day, during the height, during the heyday of uh, the Kingdom of Prussia was the uh, imperial uh, academic menzur fencing, which was, it was exactly as, as what it says on the tin. It was popular in academic circles, and the sole purpose was to prove your manliness by withstanding numerous cuts to the face. And the scars were rubbed with abrasive materials to make sure they were suitably impressive and rugged looking afterwards. And such fencing was mostly practiced by aristocrats or people wealthy enough to be enrolled in Imperial German colleges, Imperial German military colleges or otherwise. So not, you know, they weren't actually like uh, training to be battlefields soldiers that would engage in sword fights. It was during an era where firearms already ruled the battlefield. And such fencing served virtually no combat utility, outside of perhaps helping develop pain tolerance, maybe coordination, and maybe some familiarity with the sword in a very narrow context. 
it's kind of like a useless man masculinity. It doesn't even it, it's it's not even entirely destructive. It's just kind of pointless. You've totally this society, this Prussian society, has totally kind of lost whatever ideal they had, whatever the association of masculinity was. <laughs> well, yeah, the, uh, un <laughs> unlike uh, the photo of Usyk's penis, I will tell people to go and look at YouTube videos of this fencing because it's kind of unbelievable how silly it looks, and you can kind of uh, look back and. Uh, guess at how it came to this, where it's these elite Prussian men who have this strong ideal of masculinity's association with violence and injury, but their lives don't match this ideal whatsoever. So they must simulate it so that they can have the appearance that their lives are um, parallel or that are, you know, part of this ideal, right? They, so they simulate the sword fight, they simulate the injury, they have the scars. Um, and it really shows that, <laughs> and it really shows that how, how like the, how like the, the persona, the tool, the identity of masculinity, if you're not even working hard to get an ideal, even if it's a negative ideal, it just becomes like this weird kind of strange, self-destructive, pointless activity and there's like Nazis who have these scars and you can make a strong relation between Nazism, fascism, and these, these pointless dead end ideals that uh, these men had around masculinity. Yeah. And like, did this style of fencing help develop character of those men that later went on to fight in world wars, uh, both world wars? Mm, did it transfer to the to their ability to perform on the battlefield as combat officers? It also, kind of like, probably not. I mean, the time spent getting your face cut up is time not spent if you're going to be a leader of men. You know, studying logistics maps or training how to lead a squad of men that trust you so that they don't get blown up. You know, like it's not just that these things can often result in negative outcomes. That's of course a very valid point. It's that these things become distractions from, you know, um, to use what is kind of a zoomerism, touching grass. You know, actually doing practical things that benefit you and the community around you. A lot of, like like any social posturing, a lot of, oh, I'm very masculine can become performative rather than substantive. And if you're in a high social class or you're in a class that is kind of, um, I suppose, protected against competition, that can work for a while, right? But when it comes along that you have to actually do something that is objective and real and requires things like technique, you suddenly become a fearsome dictator who everyone is supposed to be terrified of, but you're doing push-ups and your arms are bowing out at the sides. I wonder who <laughs> possibly could have done that. So I'm going to steal the point that uh, uh, Tuman was going to make, which is that if you've seen the fencing and you think it looks stupid, if you've seen, you know, these, these dumb rich men or these like... Uh, 
these kind of middle-class people trying to make themselves look strong and masculine, but they're not actually training any skills. They're just injuring themselves. If you've seen these and you think it looks stupid, and then you watch footage of guys in MMA gyms training their chin by getting punched really hard, and you think that looks cool, you need to correct yourself there because they're the exact same thing. When you see dumb idiots punch, getting you know their coach to wallop them in the face you know, over and over to make them tougher, it's just it's like a modern form of the prussian fucking face fencing it's pointless it just it it indicates a kind of lost stupid idea of a masculine trait it doesn't help you at all and it's a waste of time while people are properly training and getting better and getting more skills and you are trying to look tough right this is it, it's it really is the modern day version is this idea around toughness training where we're going to, you know, hit you with a bat <laughs> to make you stronger. You know, you were going to and I love Tony Ferguson, but we're going to kick a steel pipe um, and make our legs bleed. You know, Tony Ferguson has gone through a lot of injuries. It's not a coincidence with the way he trains. Um, a lot of it is training to look cool on camera. Or, well, not really cool, but he thinks it looks cool <laughs> when he does like a flip off a big tire. Um, but it's really just risking injury and it's not helpful. It, it is really grifter masculinity. Like, that's why I call it grifter masculinity because it's not just that you, you know, it's not just that it comes. It's ineffective. It often comes at a cost to you. The same way, you know, Detriment, like yeah. uh, Coffeezilla's expose on taste on Tate's uh, what was it called, Hustler University. You're paying a lot of money for stuff that you could learn for free, and stuff you don't really want to learn <laughs> most of the time, anyways. A good recent example, just the very the most recent example, something that's actually directly affected the quality of my life is uh, Russia's. Uh, like the the hyper masculine army of Russians invading the they them ours or Ukrainian forces, and like American Trump and Z's were just uh, rampaging around on the internet, buying into Russian propaganda and believing that the U.S. military is being turned into an army of rainbow-haired pansies, uh, while completely disregarding reality. Eight hours later, <laughs> I mean, yeah, just look at look at the just damage reports and everything like the hunky russian bears are basically getting their back blown out by a recently mobilized civil defense force motivated by the fact that they're fighting for their homes and supported by the woke industrial giants of gay rope in the united communist republics of america <laughs> just, just all this posturing uh ramzan kadyrov doing dog shit push-ups gets getting zero reps in Zero quality reps on, on live <laughs> no, television. It's never going to stop being hilarious. <laughs> Just, and all those commercials where the, the grrr, angry Russian men just crawling through the mud, uh, through the mud, and uh, shaving using um, uh, cutting axes, and <laughs> all those all those other stupid shit that they're putting out on TV and people buying into it. The reality spells are just. P- p- the reality is completely different. The reality, I mean, obviously, like practice has, uh, to paraphrase uh, Perun, uh, a military analyst on YouTube, practice has uh, uh, has a has a habit of uh, beating up theory and taking its lunch money, and this is what we're witnessing right now. 
And this just demonstrates the disconnect between what being a man and being an effective soldier or whatever actually is versus what all the all these people would like you to believe. If I may make a, a point that kind of gets repeated in economics, like a lot of the people that are selling you a grift that isn't based in reality, you've got to ask the question, if this thing comes at a cost to them, right, like ineffective self-defense tactics or, you know, dating techniques that don't work or investment techniques that lose people money, if they're actually following the advice they're giving you, usually they're not, but sometimes they are, the fact that they're able to be successful or appear to be successful while using ineffective strategies tells you one of two things. Either they're already doing so well in life that they don't have to pay the cost of using shitty ideas or there's something else going on that makes their shitty ideas effective for them, right? Like, you know, a lot of what Andrew Tate talks about with effective defense and so on and what he thinks is the right approach to learning striking how much of that would actually hold up if he stepped into the ring against a top 10 or top five pound for pound kickboxer without any significant weight advantage or disadvantage? Well, I mean, if you check his kickboxing history, you'll know, and it didn't go well for him. Like reality has a way of kicking the door down on pretense. Yeah. I mean, he also thinks BJJ can't work and uh, (laughs) there's black belts who would just get on top of him and break his arm so easily (laughs) yeah but uh to talk about kadyrov i wanted to talk about his specific relation to masculinity and combat sports and not get crazy deep into it because it's a very complicated situation uh with russia and chechnya and the ukraine but the shorthand that MMA is used as for masculinity, its its association with traditional masculinity means that these people like Kadyrov who want to appear like strong, powerful, masculine men try to build up this relationship with combat sports by having Kamara Usman, Justin Gaethje, you know, Hamza Chamayev come and hang out with their son and hang out with them and shoot guns with them, right? They know that these men have a very uh, strong association with what most people think of as masculine. So they end up, you know, trying to orbit around them, right? Trying to build up this association. And because people have parasocial relationships and have idealized relationships with these fighters, they then, you know, believe this is true. They believe these Russian fighters, these Chechen forces are some kind of powerful, strong, you know, robust military when it's it's not true, right? And it shows how um, vapid these connections are and that there really is no, you, you can't, you can't force a connection with any of these ideas you can't you can't just say well i'm i hang out with these people they're my friends they're whatever therefore i am and therefore my army is and therefore you know you're not going to be just engaging because you pay money to come to your ranch and shoot some rifles it doesn't make you just engaging (laughs) and it's insulting to all the work that justin gaishi put into being such a fucking himbo yeah yeah it's true this took a lot of shots to the head to be like that that was mean. I'm sorry, Justin. 
<laughs> it's all right. He's a Labrador. Just throw him a ball and he'll bring it back to you. Wagging. I mean, tail. maybe like part of the reason why Justin Gagey changed his style was that uh, they they were playing catch with with uh, with, uh, with Trevor Whitman and Trevor Whitman accidentally threw the ball too far, and Justin Gagey just ran into a tr- into an ice cream truck. So so maybe maybe Trevor Whitman is to blame, but for a different reason. Uh, I, I think obviously we can just continue coming up with more and more examples. How, how where, where do I even try and go from <laughs> go from here? It's just that it's it's such a vast, expansive topic, and it, I think you feel like you can spend an entire like series examining it. Uh, I mean, I, I I would like to try and capture it. All right, so my example is pretty simple, but like. It's a perfect example of the kind of anti-intellectualism of the time that we exist in in the MMA space that, like, I've seen this discussion happen so many times. People will say something along the lines of, you shouldn't hit a woman. And then people will go, what do you mean? What if she's attacking you? What about equal rights? Like, you know, equal rights for equal lifts. And it's like, I feel like, okay, so the, the you shouldn't hit a woman in a combat sports context. Let's actually unpack what that means because I don't think it's that complex, but for some reason people don't want to say it explicitly. 99 times out of 100, men are physically stronger than women, so they have an advantage. They have power over women, right? Like that's just a practical reality. If you exist in a combat sports sphere, firstly, because there's a lot more men in combat sports. Secondly, because if you think about combat sports training as a kind of multiplier to your natural athletic attributes, the power differential between a man who exists in combat sports and a woman is even greater, right? So you shouldn't be hitting women because you shouldn't be using physical force on somebody who's just not a threat to you because of that power differential. Now, if that person becomes a threat to you because they grab a knife or a gun, then we're dealing with a different situation, but we shouldn't need to go through every fucking exception to establish a general rule. None of this is particularly controversial. None of this is particularly hard to understand. And when somebody says you shouldn't hit a woman, I feel like it's pretty fucking obvious that all of what I've just unpacked is included in the discussion, right? Like, you know, if, if and, and not just that, but if you do need to defend yourself, there's the idea of proportional force. If an angry woman comes up at you at a bar and starts trying to hit you, you don't need to start punching her face in, you know, restraining her, stepping away, disengaging. There's a million and one options that are between nuclear force, full escalation, all of your combat potential, in quotes, and defending yourself, right? But that's the danger with anti-intellectualism because we can get to a point where you start expecting people who are, you know, defending their position or establishing their position, you start throwing gotchas at them like, well, equal rights for equal left. So it's like, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about specific situations with specific contexts, with specific environments. So to tie that all back to MMA, the, the Dana White situation. Dana, I don't know if he does combat sports training or not, but I know he's like twice the fucking size of his wife. The guy does steroids out the out the asshole. Are you seriously going to try and tell me that when he's got, you know, when he's controlling her hands and so on, as Moni pointed out on Twitter, her slapping him is somehow such a massive escalation and such a massive threat to him that he's fully justified slapping her back? Get the fuck out of here. Like, come on. That's not proportional at all. And if you don't know what the term proportional means or how it applies... You're probably concerned trolling or sea lining at this point. 
it's it's uh, disingenuous too because it's not like the people who defend Dana White believe that it was self defense. They're just kind of in love with the idea that they get to hit a woman. You know, they say, oh, they have all this pent up frustration that has been exacerbated by grifters towards women. And they just, they're like looking for a situation in which they can either justify themselves doing it or get to vicariously, you know, justify. Yeah, it's, it's the joy they have. When escalating violence, it should never make you happy. It's not a good thing. We should. Uh, I'm glad we came to this point because we should make really clear in this whole discussion, misogyny, um, the way women are talked about in the MMA space, the violence towards women, it's disgusting. It's defended just a troubling amount. People who are doing it need to just completely reevaluate their perspective on people and individuals and you need to learn to be a much more compassionate and thoughtful person because if you live your life like this with a rage and a kind of like seething joy in the conflict and in the uh, violence it's you it's going to it's not going to work out for you and it's not going to work out for anyone else that you need to move on from that. Hopefully part of this discussion was convincing that it's not the right way to be thinking, but ultimately it's on, it's on the people who act like that to change. And the way it is now is, is uh, it, it can't stay like this because the, the, the way the community has been and the way fighters have been in reaction to a lot of this is it's it's so immature it's so it's so ignorant that serious self-reflection needs to be done people are kind of like looking for guidance right and they're looking for some kind of uh, identity signifier that they feel like can allow them to you know, get on the path to the life they want, right? This is a view that a lot of people have. It's like, there's a place I want to be. There's a person I want to be. I'm not there yet, but I need to, I need to get on the path to being that person, right? Are you outraged at the world around you? Do you think that everyone is out to get you? Well, yes, it is I, rich person who's probably the same skin color as you. I've got a solution to every problem. You need to do exactly what I say. Never question me. Follow every single part of my thing. And consider everybody else who disagrees with me your enemy. Oh, and by the way, give me money! If your identity, the tool you're using to self-direct, is based off of the outlook, philosophy, you know, opinions of just completely morally despicable sex traffickers, not only are you not going to get there, but you're going to fail yourself as well. And it's going to exacerbate all of the problems that are preventing people from self-actualizing, from getting to places they want to be, from becoming the person they want to be. So if you're going to use your identity, if you're going to have you know a strong sense of self because you think it will help you to be a fulfilled person or to help your community, then make sure the things you are associating yourself with your sense of self just don't be it's gonna sound stupid 
don't base it off of what sex traffickers say. Don't base it off of what, you know, criminal combat sports athletes say. Base it off of people who have positive life examples and legacies and and histories. Srirum said it the other day uh, in a conversation, in a private conversation, like the least the least manly thing in the world is to just try to just go out of your way and rip your asshole in half to try and be more manly. If you're trying to force something, you're not. And specifically, you're trying to force it in this very like shallow way, then who you are will become shallow. Yeah, it's like if you're trying to fit, if you let somebody else do all of the thinking for you as to what you should be, then what's what left what is left of you that's actually you really like for me that's it and the other part is to 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 again go back to what i've brought up a few times if the person that's telling you what you need to be or how to get ahead is telling you a story with no nuance if they're saying the only way to be successful is to be what i say is successful that's a warning sign because like i'm going to track back to something that i think that almost every single person in mma left or right, up or down, any country, any faith, ethnicity, whatever we'd agree on. One of the great things about MMA is that it's a combination of all styles and that we've seen just about every single different type of fighter win a title. Hell, even within guys where if you're very superficial, you might say they're the same, like Mac and Habib, you can see a tremendous breadth and depth of difference within their styles. So if you can be a world champion at mixed martial arts, fighting in so many different ways or to put it another way if there's more than one way to be one of the greatest fighters of all time why isn't there more than one way to be a man so just really really just hammer at home what's your what's what is currently being promoted in the in the corporate sports space it's just it's all about the easy way out top 10 tips to boost testosterone do this one thing to conquer the world the get rich quick scheme for personal fulfillment and it reinforces just a zero-sum picture of the world where someone stands the game and uh, all others stand to lose and uh, this is just the natural order of the world to them. And you go to scramble to become the winner so you can enjoy the spoils of the victory you've brought for yourself through the misery you brought upon everyone else. And because history is written by the winners, and therefore winner, winning absolves you of all responsibility, that means you don't have to change. You don't have to improve or be considerate of others. Just do these top 10 tips, and this is your carte blanche to remain a piece of shit. <laughs> and to just... Much right, much like all these societal roles, it's and a lot about the masculine myth and what they're selling is just arbitrary, quote unquote, done things. And they're they're almost they're even more shallow than the societal roles that we just place upon ourselves. All these identifiers, like, are there biological reasons for human behavior? Sure, just look at the way our brains work. Like, um, our brains are pattern recognition machines. They come in with built-in heuristics to make us act fast and think fast in order to not be eaten by predators. However, all these same mechanisms also lead to all sorts of biases and wonky irrational judgments because our brains aren't created to help us solve logical problems. They exist to help us not be eaten, find food, mate, raise offspring, and that's it, just like any other animals. 
Does it mean we have to give up on rationality? No. Does it mean our subconscious, dictating our behavior in all sorts of subtle ways, is the end-all, be-all, and whatever heuristic non-logic we come up with is actually the objective truth, like the Ben Shapiro's of the world would like us to believe when they engage in magical thinking, call it facts and logic? Fuck no. Ideals and traditions are mechanisms of enforcing some form of societal order. Ideals and traditions evolve over time, and falling back on it's the done thing, especially when you misinterpret the done thing, or the reasons why it was the done thing, is lazy. And it's the coward's way out of being a decent human being. You have a brain, fucking use it. That's it. That's 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 my two, that's my two cents on this whole situation. All right. Very good. I liked it. That was a good talk. It was a bit <laughs> disjointed, probably more disjointed than it, than it, it was. Should have been, but uh, at least we yeah. covered pretty much everything that I wanted to cover for this. Yeah, I guess we just. I think it's a little bit okay that it's disjointed because I think the people listening to this, it's a little bit of like a, it's a little bit of like an idea yeah. bubble or you know like a an idea web where you're just kind of branching out and and it's good to like bring up like a fighter and then you can connect it back later instead of making it also like chronological, right? There's so many examples and they're they're all uniquely terrible. Yeah. I mean, it's such a big topic. It's so hard to do in like, uh, you know. To be honest, I think one of the problems with running this discussion is that like every single time we've been like, okay, we've got everything we need to say. Some other misogynist is like, da 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 da, Super Smash Bros. music, a challenger appears. Like, like every every time we were like, okay, we've fiddle hit all the topics. Some other dumbass would do something new. Oh, Chris Curtis, it's time for him to give his opinion. And then we have another thing we have to talk about. I mean, to Chris Curtis's credit, he actually, like, you know, condemned... Yeah, that's true. Some, yeah. ...some of the things that happened recently. <laughs> Honestly, he's probably, he's probably, like, in the 95th percentile. Oh.